Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Before I begin this episode, I want to tell you about a survey I've created for Fair Folk listeners. The survey takes about four minutes to finish and consists of ten short questions about things like past and future topics, your preferred episode length, and why you listen in the first place. The link is right here in the show notes and also on the Fair Folk Facebook page at facebook.com slash fairfolkcast. Hearing from you really helps me get a sense of what you enjoy about the show and how I can keep making it better for you, the people I'm thinking of when I make these episodes. Now let's get started. This is the second in a series of episodes about traditional vocal polyphony. Polyphony is, in short, music with more than one independent melody. Traditional polyphonic singing is found in regions the world over, and as you may have heard in the first episode in this series, it precedes the development of polyphonic texture in what we call Western classical music by thousands, if not millions, of years. The history of music itself is as multi-layered as its products, and shrouded under a heavy coat of time and texture. Since the advent of the printed book and in the age of the internet, it's terribly easy to forget that information traveled by very different means in the not-so-distant past. Before modern communication technology, cultural exchange was determined and limited by very material factors, like rocks, trees, glaciers, deserts, bodies of water, and above all, the delicate threads of memory and oral tradition. In its oldest form, polyphony belongs to those communities and geographic regions that are the least prone to influence from outside, and those physical features of landscape determine where songs stick and where they become unstuck and roam about, mixing with other styles. But what does it mean exactly to preserve a tradition, and what is gained, or possibly lost, in the process? In keeping with polyphony's definitive diversity, it's hard to tell one story about the origin of this singing style. Nevertheless, if you can say it began anywhere, it began in Africa. In Central Africa, specifically the Congo, the Central African Republic, and Cameroon, a few groups of peoples exist, known conventionally to English speakers as the Pygmies. These are hunter-gatherer forest dwellers, belonging to two larger groups called the Mbenga in the west and the Mbuti in the east. Their way of life is attuned to the rainforest, where they have lived for likely 60,000 years. In Africa, they are known for their honey-collecting and hunting skills. In the last few centuries, hunting of elephants in particular and their traditional healers, called Nganga, whose knowledge of medicinal plants and ability to contact spirits earns them income from neighboring villages. What you're hearing is a song by Mbuti Pygmies sung while gathering honey. You might notice how uplifting the song is, and that's typical of pygmy music. Unlike Western folk, pop, and classical music, there are no sad or angry songs, no angsty black metal to vent teenage frustrations. On the contrary, the purpose of music in pygmy societies is to uplift people, to create joy among humans and spirits. If you're feeling sad, you sing a happy song. And the songs the pygmies sing are of such a joyful quality, and so innately wonderful, they serve the purpose marvelously. The polyphonic music of Central African pygmies has been the subject of deep fascination internationally, due primarily to the stunning complexity of their melodic and rhythmic layering. Their music is characterized by yodeling, and short, repeated, often wordless phrases, which are improvised throughout the duration of the song. The sound is truly remarkable, 
and for generations of anthropologists, it has been symbolic of a way of life that many Westerners mourn as lost to them, a peaceful, egalitarian, hunter-gatherer existence embedded in nature. There are no performers and no audience members in pygmy musical culture. There may be a lead singer responsible for improvisation, but all people in a pygmy community participate in music making. Making sound and rhythm is simply a part of daily life and its many activities, such as making camp, conducting funerals, and hunting. For example, yodeling is used by the men in the forest to communicate with one another and also to drive game to a desired location by frightening them away from the loud sounds of the human voice, as in this example from the Acapygmies of the Mbenga group. This next song, Mo Nzombe, also from the Aka, celebrates after a successful hunt. Despite strong and ongoing international interest in Central African pygmy culture and music, many factors are contributing to a loss of pygmy traditional ways of being in the Central African rainforest. The primary force is deforestation, though pygmies have also been displaced significantly by conservation efforts, ironically, which have seen them evicted from their traditional territories with the creation of national parks. The most troubling difficulty they face, perhaps, is the social prejudice of neighboring communities, due in part to their egalitarian social dynamic, which differs from the patriarchal structure of villages at the edge of the forest. The future of the pygmy traditional way of life is uncertain, though there are many groups and organizations working to assist these groups in maintaining their traditional lands and ways of life. I'll link to some of those in the show notes below. When we talk about tradition, what we tend to mean is the set of social habits, beliefs, and conventional practices that belong to a group of people for a long period of time. What we don't always consider is the fact that the longest lasting of these practices develop out of the ways that people relate to their very particular patch of earth, with its particular qualities of stone, of tree, of nut, of game, and of grass. Environment and food are alive with meaning and import in traditional music, and without them, Traditions wouldn't sing the way that they do, rich with green life and soil, accompanying the natural cycles of marriage and death, sowing and harvest. In Russia, the songs of Slavic peasant farmers, 
who lived by working the land, have been preserved in great number, though it has only been in the last 100 years that their cultural richness has been acknowledged. This is especially so with the polyphonic songs sung by rural farmers. As land-based lifestyles began to decline in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the suddenly pressing need to preserve peasant music, combined with newly available recording technology, meant that musicologists in Russia were scrambling to record and transcribe the music of the peasants in the countryside before they possibly disappeared forever. Strangely, Russian polyphony, one of the earliest forms associated with pre-Christian rituals and their songs, was one of the later styles of music to be recorded and studied. This next song, Strela, or The Arrow, performed by the Moscow group Beli Svat, or White Light in English, is one of those ancient ritual peasant songs. Ekaterina Retz, the band's leader, has done ethnographic recording in Russian villages in the Bryansk region, though her resume will tell you that most days she works as a research scientist in river basin hydrology. She explained the history and meaning of this song to me, and I paraphrase her explanation here. Strela was recorded in Mishkovka village in Bryanskaya district. It belongs to the so-called Polesi region, which is hard to translate but roughly equates to forest. Polesi unites the borderland of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. It is widely believed among experts that the most ancient songs of the Slavic culture were preserved in this region. This song, Strela, relates to the arrow burial pagan ritual that was kept by the local rural population until the 1980s. Held after sowing seeds, the ritual aimed to generate rain and to preserve the houses from lightning at the same time. The central element of the ritual was singing in a very intense manner, shouting as local people call it, a special ensemble of songs. The sharp, whooping sound at the end of each couplet that you'll hear in the song is also associated with the arrow of human will that can break the border of the everyday reality and reach to natural forces. In the text of the songs, anthropologists distinctly identify the traces of human sacrifice that was held to please the gods of lightning in previous generations. In the 20th century, the participants of the ritual buried a human figure made of bread, singing and referring to the lightning, Fly, arrow, fly. Don't kill the raven, but kill a young man. There is nobody will cry for a raven, but lots of tears will be shed for a young man. It was believed these tears, shed for the young man, would help the sky to break out with rain. Oh,
the discovery of Russian folk music by musicologists came not a moment too soon. In 1904, Yevgenia Lenyova, a founding member of the new Moscow Musico-Ethnographic Commission, published the first recordings of Russian folk song on phonographic recording. And in 1923, a few years after the revolution that ended his job in the church, ethnographer and choirmaster Alexander Kastalsky published the first book on the theory of Russian folk music. Prior to these recordings and writings, there was a firmly held, and of course false, belief among musicologists that Russian folk music was strictly monophonic, that is, having only one independent melody. This view persisted for so long, partly, and amazingly, because the Russian folk arrangements were so complex, nobody was up to the task of transcribing them themselves until that point. With the Industrial Revolution came the benefits of technology, employment, electricity, manufactured clothing, urban living, and a presumably higher standard of life. But what did 19th century Russians stand to lose? In 1912, the music critic Yuri Saknovsky bemoaned the mass manufacturing of popular so-called folk music that accompanied industrialization, equating the change in culture to an impoverishment of family, emotional, and aesthetic life. He writes, What is so moving is the strong sense of close family life that permeates all the old songs from the backwoods of Russia. A way of life that is dying out, along with the old Russian folk song, gradually being overrun by the cheap, barroom, good-for-nothing, hoodlum repertoire of the popular Russian folk singers. And barroom licentiousness, cheap lewdness, and utter destruction of family life is just what this factory-produced song reeks of. But how could it be otherwise? What else is there to be inspired by? When instead of a clear starry sky, there is a grimy ceiling with the flickering shadows of drive belts. When instead of golden fields of grain, there are rows of looms and spinning jennies. When instead of the sun and moon, there is a half-burned-out electric light bulb. When instead of the living stream of fresh air, there is the stink of oil and steam. When, finally, there is not even time to surrender to one's grief to let it pour out in sounds. And if a rare brief hour of rest does finally come, there is no longer anything left but the incontestable need of the body to surrender to drunken debauchery. After the Industrial Revolution, and in the Soviet era, Russian folk music went even further underground, as so-called folk songs were often outright invented in order to manufacture a sense of unified national folk tradition, which did not exist. In the post-Soviet era, where academic and cultural freedom and funding for authentic folklore research has increased significantly, so has awareness of ancient polyphonic Russian folk song traditions. But the Russian folk music revival has had a few waves, including an impressively active one in the 1970s and 80s. One key figure in this movement was named Dmitry Pokrovsky. When Pokrovsky was a student of conducting in the early 70s, he happened to hear a performance in a village by a group of old women. Their singing style was polyphonic, rich and beautiful, and totally unknown in the cities. Pavrovsky was struck. Even he, a music student, had not been exposed to this ancient singing style, which these women had simply learned from oral tradition. He was inspired to study and promote this style by learning the practice through immersive study. Instead of preserving it by freezing it in time, Pokrovsky explicitly sought to embody the living tradition in an ensemble he formed for the purpose which he called his living laboratory. Pokrovsky went on to share the music across Russia and in universities worldwide. He was one of the first Russians to promote research into true Russian musical folklore since the Soviet era began. This is the Dmitry Pokrovsky Ensemble with Oak Forest. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Nature itself speaks with many voices, so it comes as no surprise that the difficult landscapes that produce these stunning and unique musical traditions are also responsible for maintaining their special character, nurturing them through political and cultural changes of the many ages that have passed since polyphony began. One of the richest regions of polyphonic singing is the Caucasus, home of the High Caucasus Mountains, which provide a natural geological boundary between Eastern Europe and Western Asia. Polyphony in this region is typified by drone, which is one of the features of the older polyphonic style, found in regions isolated from the influence of Western classical music. No polyphonic tradition from the Caucasus is perhaps better known or more varied than Georgian polyphony. Georgian polyphony is widespread across the country, unlike many other regions containing polyphony, and it has a great deal of local variation, with no fewer than 16 regional styles. Multipart singing is so common in Georgia that it's said you rarely hear a person singing alone if there is someone present to accompany them. Originally from Kakheti in eastern Georgia, the best-known Georgian polyphonic song worldwide has an unusual distinction. In 1977, it was sent into space in the Voyager spacecraft on a golden record titled in English, The Sounds of Earth. It was accompanied by many other recordings intended to exemplify human culture on Earth, greetings in 55 languages, 115 photographs encoded as analog signals, and 90 minutes of beautiful music, including Louis Armstrong and Stravinsky, and another polyphonic song from the Mbuti Pygmies. The Georgian song included on the disc, Chakrulo, is in the typical style of the Kakati region. It features a long drone bass, with two singers soloing above. It's what's called a table song, that is, an ornamental song historically sung in the context of a feast, and it describes the struggle of a peasant against the rule of a landowner. This is the Georgian chorus with Chakrulo.
I plan to delve further into Georgian polyphony in a later episode, but for now, I'm keen to share with you my interview with a world expert on traditional polyphony, its distribution throughout the world, and its possible origins in the deep history of human evolution. Joseph Jordania is a Georgian ethnomusicologist who lives and teaches in Melbourne, Australia. He has published several books on polyphony and early human evolution, including Who Asked the First Question? Origins of Human Choral Singing, Intelligence, Language, and Speech. He also organizes the International Symposium on Traditional Polyphony, which will take place this October. Here is our conversation. My name is Joseph Jordania. I'm originally from Georgia, Georgia, which was part of Soviet Union. And uh, I was born in 1954 in Tbilisi and was educated as a musicologist. And uh, then I gradually leaned toward evolutionary musicology and ethnomusicology. And uh, my lifelong research topic has been the origins of polyphonic singing and distribution of polyphonic singing all over the world. And I published several books. And uh, one, one of these books in 2006 was published, called the first question, The origin, Origins of Human Choral Singing. Then I published a few, few other books, and uh, now I'm, my most recent book was about the new, new model of human evolution, which I came from my uh, musicological and musicological researches. I'm working now at the Melbourne University, and uh, I still have a very co- close contact with the Georgian International Research Center for Traditional Polyphony in Tbilisi. But anyway, that's, that's basically it. So you grew up in Georgia then? Yes, I grew up in Georgia. I lived in Georgia until I was 40 years old. And so you grew up hearing polyphonic singing, yes? Uh, yes, of course, as a part of culture, I've been growing up in singing in polyphonic uh, songs. But I, I lived in Tbilisi, so uh, I, I first I heard the uh, native, like... Uh, villagers singing polyphonic sing- songs uh, only when I went to, in, in the field work with my father in 1970s when I was like 18 and 19 years old. Your father was doing field work in musicology? My father uh, was a very well-known ethnomusicologist mm-hmm. and uh, he is to, to blame that I became ethnomusicologist because I myself wanted to become more of a biologist or zoologist because I, <laughs> animals are still my biggest uh, passion. But he, he persuaded me, and I think he did a good thing, uh, uh, explaining to me that Georgia was a very unique place with its polyphony, and he's, he's been polyphonist, and I have a good, good musical ear, and all the different things, and said that would be, would be good if you also become a musicologist. And uh, I became, and <laughs> I don't regret. But you managed to combine it with biology somewhat, didn't you? That, that's an amazing thing, yeah. You know that when you have a passion for something and you're in a different field, yeah. then something new and interesting comes out. You kind of try combining them. And uh, it's always good when you, when, you have, when you can combine different fields uh, with each other. You can always uh, come up with something very new and very fresh. It's like, look at the problems of one discipline from the eyes of another discipline. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your earliest experience hearing polyphonic singing? I guess it's probably pretty pretty deep. Oh, well, what I remember, you need to know that it was Soviet Union, it was a communist country. So mm-hmm. in Soviet Union, folk music and traditional music was encouraged. Oh, yeah. So Georgia was well known for its polyphonic singing, and in Russia and everywhere, they loved our singing, and polyphonic singing was all over the place. Mm. But on the, on the other hand, what was discouraged totally is uh, Georgian uh, liturgical singing, church singing. Huh. So in, in 1960s, it was a big deal when uh, during this milder period, uh, uh, during Khrushchev and after Khrushchev, when, uh, when you could hear Georgian church songs on the TV or on the radio. And I remember hearing this for the first time. Uh, it was an amazing effect. Gordela, uh, Gordela singing Georgian church songs with a mysterious and very rich harmonies. And I remember that very well.
Uh, the, the concept of polyphonic singing was around before medieval Christianity began using it. And that used to be a controversial topic, wasn't it? I think you wrote about that. Oh, well, it's a very <laughs> big question. When, when you're dealing with the history of music, you probably know that uh, one of the biggest questions in the history of music is the origin of polyphony. Because uh, it was for a long time believed that polyphony was invented by Christian monks in medieval Europe. It was assumed that before, before all the people were singing in monophony in one part, mm. and then at some point, at some point, people kind of, well, I can say, get bored or wanted just to mm -hmm. go on the next level, and they started combining two different sounds together. That's how polyphony came around. And uh, the first type of polyphony, as we learned, it was organum, etc., etc. But this uh, kind of approach was challenged very much after uh, European missionaries and European travels find out that some of the most remote and most, as they would say, savage uh, tribes had polyphony. For instance, when James Cook went to uh, Polynesia, it's 18th century, 1770s. And he had uh, on his, uh, as one of the companions, a person who knew music quite well. Mm -hmm. And he wrote down that he heard four part singing from women and was close singing, like dissonant singing. And one of the parts was singing drone. So it was exactly explaining how this four part singing was working. It was a bit like Albanian singing or Balkan type of singing. And uh, when European musicologists heard that, they could not believe that. They said, that, no, that's mm. impossible, because we know that all ancient Greeks and Chinese who have been civilized for such a long time, they didn't have polyphony. So it's, it's, it's impossible to believe that people, semi-barbarous people like in Polynesia, would have reached the development of polyphony, which needs professional work and uh, studying of the development of polyphony. So they didn't believe that. Mm. And then later, when, for instance, when the travelers came to Central Africa and they found that pygmies who live in the jungles and uh, their technological development was very far from being called civilized in our understanding, right. that they had very, uh, very developed polyphonic singing with yodeling and with lots of parts combining together. And everyone could sing. So they started to understand that after all, probably Europeans did not invent polyphony. Well, so that's what I'm telling you is, is uh, beginning of the 20th century research when mm -hmm. Mario Schneider, have you heard the name of Mario Schneider? Just from your writing. <laughs> okay. So Mario Schneider put the idea that no, polyphony came from traditional music, not from uh, professional development. And for Mario, for Mario Schneider, Southeast Asia was the center where polyphony emerged. Mm -hmm. And then after the, the cultural contact went toward the West. So uh, Mario Schneider was an interesting figure as, as such, because on one hand, he was a, a kind of more accepting the fact that it was not developed by European missionaries and the European uh, church uh, musicians. But on the other hand, uh, he was still believing that polyphony was a level of development of musical culture yeah. that came came later. So Schneider published his book in 1933 and 1934. Uh, and uh, his, his book was uh, hated by uh, Nazis hmm. because Schneider was saying that, although he said that Europeans developed polyphony more than any, any other races around the world, he wrote that the Europeans did not invent polyphony. That's what the Nazis hated, of course. And so, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, politics and science are always intertwined. Mm -hmm. you know, so. And uh, then, uh, but I, uh, I, I don't think that Schneider was correct in, in the way that to say that polyphony was a higher level of the uh, development of musical culture. I, what I suggested is that uh, polyphony was the initial original musical culture for all human populations that came out from Africa about two million years ago. But I suggested that polyphony, uh, what the very developed polyphony was before humans developed uh, speech. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that. I think it's really interesting that you connect this style of singing to the origins of human speech. Um, can you can you explain the connection between those two things? Okay, uh, well, 
All right. Uh, it's not my. It's like not, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's not my idea that uh, singing was a kind of system of communication hmm. before before uh, the language and speech came came around. Okay. But what I suggested is that music was used as a system of communication. Human musical abilities were much higher mm-hmm. and much so they needed it. It's it's a bit like that. It was one of the demands for survival. Mm-hmm. So you know that, for instance, when the babies, human babies, are born even today, mm-hmm. they all have perfect pitch. I didn't know that. Yes, and when, when so we all had perfect pitch, and when they grow up, when we grow up, then we gradually lose this ability. Mm-hmm. So. Everyone has perfect speech, and then only one in out out of ten thousand retains perfect speech, hmm. which which shows that earlier our ancestors needed musical abilities more. So I I propose that the speech when the speech appeared, humans gradually the musical abilities started losing their primal importance for survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have you have a musical communication. Everyone needs musical good musical ear to survive uh, to avoid predators to be communicate with each other but then the speech, speech comes in and when speech comes in now speech becomes the most important thing yeah. today if you are a person with a deaf ear and uh, you, you cannot sing a singing tune you cannot recognize music you can still be an extremely uh, wealthy and extremely successful person because if you can speak and you can explain your ideas and you have intelligence you can be very successful so musical m- music has lost its importance. On the other hand, speech started developing more and more and more, and some of the earlier problems that humans had started disappearing. And one of these uh, elements was the speech pathologist. Have you read a little bit in, in some of my writings about stuttering? Yes, yeah. Yes, so what, what I propose that uh, as we have a very clear distinction between different big human populations according to the polyphony or monophony. We, we, have, we have the most polyphonic part of the world is Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, which is almost completely polyphonic. Mm-hmm. Then we have Europe, which is at least partly polyphony, and polyphony is mostly survived in the mountainous and isolated regions. Mm-hmm. Then we have monophonic regions like uh, part, part of the southern Europe, Mm-hmm. And uh, most importantly, uh, East Asians, East Asian populations, and Australian Aboriginal populations. Hmm. So I I propose that these differences might be due to the switch to articulated speech yeah. in different times. So that's a totally new. Uh, that was a totally new idea. And when I first told this to my colleague, my older colleague, not colleague, he was a physical anthropologist. He was, he was amazed and he told mm-hmm. me that, wow, uh, you know, what you're saying, it uh, sounds quite racist. Because some, some people went to speech earlier, some people went to later. And you are lucky that Europeans are not on the top. So you're not saying that Europeans were the first to start its speech, because that would be Europocentrist attitude would, would lead to this. Mm-hmm. But no. For me, Europeans were the second last to get the speech. Mm-hmm. So the, the earliest were the East Asians, mm-hmm. then Australian Aborigines, then Europeans, and then, then African populations. And uh, it's interesting that uh, if you look at the uh, in- information from the different regions of the different regions of the world about the craniological finds, mm-hmm. these regions show the different development of the uh, crania, you know, the skull. Mm-hmm. Because when, when you have a speech developing, you have the facial features changing. Yeah. And it was Grover Krantz who, who said that uh, sapienization was mostly, the last phase of sapienization was connected to speech, so that speech changed our face. Yeah. So, and you, you can find that, uh, <laughs> I was amazed to find that sapienization or the appearance of the contemporary, more contemporary phase, happened in East Asia about 350,000 years ago. And then in Australia about 200,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Then Europe, because there are two different regions of about 100,000 and, uh, and, and about 40,000 years ago. And then African populations only, according to the contemporary knowledge, only 11,000 years ago, mm. which, which gives a 
huge difference in time timing time frames for the origins of speech if we connect them. And, uh, and uh, the stuttering, why I mentioned that stuttering is, uh, it's well known for the speech pathology. The stuttering is our uh, kind of evolutionary disease mm. because we, we were not good earlier at speech and we are getting better gradually, <laughs> better and better. Um, I wanted to ask you about the symposium that you're involved in. You, uh, yes. you head the International Bureau of the Research Center for Traditional Polyphony, right? Yes. And they host a symposium every two years on traditional polyphony. That's right, that's right, that's right. And it'll be late October, yeah? Yes. I can tell you that uh, we, we started, you know, Georgia has been always priding themselves as the place of the very rich traditional polyphony. And uh, with, with my friend, Edisher Garagani, we started uh, uh, organizing the conference that would be only for Soviet scholars, for Soviet participants. But Soviet Union, you know, it was a huge country with 15 different countries in it. And uh, we had the first conference in 1984. And we, we, all the scholars were saying that if, if, there, if there is a center for, poly, for study of polyphonic music, it must be in Georgia. And so uh, we were working, working for that to make that center be able to open in Georgia. But then, of course, it was a disastrous end of ninety, end of eighties and beginning of nineties, where Soviet Union broke up, and uh, the situation was so awful, and uh, there was a war in in Tbilisi, and the part of the city was burned down, and uh, and we, that, that's when uh, we decided to leave leave Georgia, and when I came, then uh, my good colleague. Uh, uh, Rusudan Turzomia, who is the head of the uh, Polyphonic Symposium, she's a very energetic person and uh, wonderful organizer and good scholar. She uh, uh, wrote to me that she wanted to bring back this tradition of the uh, conferences, but to make it on a larger scale. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I was helping from here to organize the first symposium of traditional polyphony, which was in 2002. Before that, in 2001, Georgian traditional polyphony was declared as the intangible uh, heritage of human culture. Mm -hmm. So all came together. So we had funding from Japanese government. We had a lot of these scholars from all over the world coming to, to the symposium. And the, 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 the International Research Center for Traditional Polyphony started at that time. So after that, we didn't miss a year. So, this will be ninth symposium on uh, the study of traditional polyphony. This is a continuation of a big, big legacy from our from our scholars from the earlier generation. So for Georgians, we can shortly say that uh, studying of polyphonic music and basically even ethnomusicology is a very big thing. Can people come to the conference who aren't presenting papers? Yes, and we are... Uh, open, we have a very wide range of topics. Mm. Apart from people talking about polyphonic music, they can talk about animals mm -hmm. singing uh, in choruses together. Oh, they, cool. they, they, they can talk about the, the polyphonic music in, uh, say, uh, in popular music. In Among the Beatles, for instance, we had a paper about the Beatles. And uh, so it's a very, if we can have a social problems of the, uh, we, we can have instrumental polyphony, we have church music and the uh, distribution of uh, polyphony in church music. So we, we try to be as open as possible to all the scholars working in one or another way in polyphonic music. We had even a paper discussing use of polyphony in, uh, in politics, hmm. how the different uh, types of polyphony are used in politics uh, with the <laughs> with a very uh, cunning uh, um, means, you know. I'll just tell you, to tell you one, one example. For instance, yeah. have, you, have you heard of ostinato? I've heard the word, but I don't know why. Okay, ostinato. It, it's, uh, it resembles very much obstinate. Yeah? <laughs> and and yeah. the Italian word means exactly that. It's very obstinate. So it doesn't want to change. Mm -hmm. So ostinato in music, it's like... da 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 when you repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. Mm -hmm. It's a, for music, it's a bread, butter, 
water, everything for me. Music, music is a, um, music is primarily made to affect us emotionally. Yeah, music doesn't tell us information. It's mostly to affect emotion. And repetition is what makes emotions tick. And uh, imagine now the what, what, how politics, how politicians are using ostinato for their means. For instance, if the uh, if the opposition is talking, opposition can say our government failed to provide good life for blah blah blah. Our government failed to provide good you know internet connections. Our government failed to provide uh, affordable houses. Our government failed to provide jobs for everyone. So, uh, in, in for the point of view of uh, just a speech, you can say that you can the the person of from the Opposition could say our government failed in this, in this, in this, in this, in this, in this. Okay, but no, it's the most important emotional element is to say many times our government failed, our government failed. Gradually get the general information, emotional information is that our government failed. <laughs> and on the other hand, if the government is talking, they they will be talking that we've achieved to do this and this, we've achieved to, to do this, we've achieved. So finally, we remember the one word is. Achieved. Oh, they achieved a lot of things. It depends very often whom you listen to last, the government or the opposition. So that's how, for instance, the uh, musical emotional effect of the speeches, this ostinato in speech can work. So this was uh, one of the also uh, papers that did at our symposium. So people are from, from very different places are coming to our symposium. Mm, I remember I was in Japan and uh, we went to Ainos, uh, and uh, the Japanese professor told me, why do you want to, to go to Ainos? They have no polyphony. I said, no, they do have polyphony. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. Ainos musicologists say that they have no polyphony. But when we went there, and he, he sat there and said, oh yes, I can see they have polyphony. I know musicologists who provided the information that they had, had no polyphony. She was so happy to hear suddenly that no, I do have polyphony that she came and came more than once to, to our companies. <laughs> so our our symposium also became a good uh, place for uh, different scholars to get interested in their own traditions and to get interested in searching for new new places where polyphony can be found. And by the way, by the way, uh, what I don't want to miss for this for your program, mm -hmm. if anyone gets interested uh, with the idea, how can we find the polyphony? Is there any recipes to find the polyphony? Yeah. Well, <laughs> anywhere, anywhere in the world. The, the only recipe that I know that it's most working is that if you are interested, for instance, is there any polyphony in China or in Korea or in South America or somewhere else. You need to take a map, physical map of this place mm -hmm. and search for the places that are most isolated mm -hmm. and most difficult to reach. Because polyphony is gradually disappearing all over the world. And the, most of the polyphonic regions are scattered around the world in the most isolated places. Yeah. So in, in Tibet, there is a polyphony, for instance, in Nuristan, in, Afghanistan mountain, there is a very interesting traditional polyphony. In northern Japan, as I mentioned, in Aino, it's a very interesting polyphony. In, in mountains, of top, mountain regions of the Balkans or the Alps, they have polyphony. On the island, they have polyphony. On the big forests like Central Africa, they have polyphony. So, if you if you want to find if there is any polyphonic in the in the uh, in the country or in the region, try to find the most difficult places to to live and to reach, and most likely you will find polyphonic there. So it's not any easy, easy to go there, but that's if you are searching for polyphony, that's the most rewarding way to search for that.
Yeah, I was. Um, I noticed that on the call for papers for the symposium this year, there's a roundtable based on considering the connection between mountainous regions and polygamy. Yes, that's right. And I was wondering if you'd read any research about that so far, or who, where that came from, specifically mountains. You know, mountainous places are very specific. Mm-hmm. It was so well known that mountainous regions have polyphony. There were scholars who were arguing, particularly in former Soviet Union, it was a very big topic of discussion, that mountains actually create polyphony. They, they would say that, okay, when when a person shouts, in yeah. second he hears the echo from the mountains coming. So, so possibly that gave them idea of the richer sound than one sound, so that people would start singing coming from this very echoing place. But I, I would say uh, that this way, most of the mountains in the world have polyphony, but not all the polyphony is in mountains. <laughs> for, for instance, in Central Africa, it's difficult to find any more mountain-less place than Central Africa. <laughs> and you go there and there are plenty of polyphony. Mm-hmm. But I say that at, at the same time, mountains are also geographically isolating places. Mm-hmm. So... If you live in mountains, you are most likely won't be bothered as much. If it's a high mountain, so of course, if it's a relatively low hills, then it's not that much big difference. But mm-hmm. if it's a high mountains, you won't be disturbed by many other changes that happened around the world. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Nuristan is in, in eastern Afghanistan, mm-hmm. close to Kabul. They lived without uh, becoming Muslims until the end of 19th century because no one could get there. The only time that anyone was, was able to get there was Alexander the Great, who, who was accepted, who came there as a friend and was accepted there, and they even given their own fighters hmm. to help. Hmm. Okay, but otherwise, uh, all the, uh, the Mongolian uh, you know, guys who conquered half of the world, they couldn't get there. Hmm. Even they couldn't get to, to the point when they could fight them because they could burn the, some of the small fragile ridges, mm. and that's it. They couldn't get there. Mm. So mount, mountains have this great power of isolation. So if you live in mountains, you are not disturbed very much. For instance, in, in, in Georgia, is the most mountainous place in Soneti. Soneti is the heaven for, for the historians and for the um, ethnographers. In Soneti, they have so much ancient things happening that Every time I go to Georgia, every time I, I always going to Soneti because it's a really a, something like from the early medieval times where followed followed them there. The amazing singing and round dancing, even poetry, all the things. Oh, it's just amazing. It <laughs> sounds really wonderful. I have one more question. If we are evolving away from vocal polyphony, what do you think? the future of polyphonic singing is? Yes, I, I, I believe that polyphony is gradually disappearing all over the world, everywhere, from Balkan, from Italy, from uh, Japan, from Taiwan, from Georgia also, that is gradually disappearing, disappearing. But what I'm talking about, it's disappearing from the everyday village life. Right. Well, well what is happening? What is happening? That instead we have more ensembles forming. For instance, in... Uh, in, in Georgia, there are now plenty of ensembles that sing Georgian polyphonic songs. But uh, if you go to, to some of the regions of the Georgia, for instance, in southern part or southwestern part, you, you find that some of these parts are polyphonies lost. So I guess, but it takes plenty of time. So according to my estimates, polyphony to, to disappear takes about 50 to 70,000 years. So... We won't be around to see when it all disappeared, of course, but it's it's gradually on its way out. Thank you for listening to Fair Folk, and please consider filling out the listener survey linked in the show notes and on the Fair Folk Facebook page. I want to know what's going to make you happiest as I continue producing Fair Folk. You can also email me at fairfolkcast at gmail.com at any time to give me feedback, 
And if you review the show on iTunes, that makes a big difference in how easy it is for people to find the podcast. Fair Folk is a radio show and podcast exploring folk culture and music from around the world. The show is hosted by Smithers Community Radio, CICK, smithersradio.com, and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.